Hello, and welcome to The X Degree, a podcast where we delve deep into the abyss of the internet to find a strange connection between two random things. My name is Eric Stafford. Today we will be looking into a connection between sporks, a physical portmanteau of a spoon and a fork, and Dungeons and Dragons, a role-playing game that lets nerds imaginarily stab people since 1974. At this point in my life, I feel like I only have one hobby outside of making this podcast at the last minute of every month. I'm a hiker and backpacker. I don't go out as much as other people do, and I am no way as much of a vagabond or dirtbag as I wish I could be, but I give it a good college try. I can let my beard grow out, I stop wearing deodorant, and I can go to the bathroom in nature just as good as the rest of them. And as I was assuming this persona a few years ago, I made a big purchase from Recreational Equipment Incorporated to start, you know, living like I'm homeless. One of the items I purchased were trekking poles, those ski pole looking things that you see old people hike with. And as dorky as they look, they are lifesavers when you have 25, 30 pounds on your back. But when my order came in, there weren't any trekking poles in any of the boxes, just a small metal object in a plastic sleeve. They had sent me a titanium spork instead of my trekking poles. When I called customer service, the guy on the other end looked at my order and went, huh, look at that. You ordered poles, and we sent you a spork. That's funny. All right, I'll have them send the trekking poles out now. I asked, so do you, you like want me to return the spork? or?" And he replied, honestly, it would cost more for us to ship it back than if you actually bought it, so keep it. That's how I have my spork I go backpacking with. Freaking love REI. Sporks have been around for, you know, honestly... Who really knows at this point? It's an interesting thing to date inventions like this. Honestly, when you start asking about the history of the fork or even the spoon, you get you actually learn a ton about how human beings have developed tools. Like archaeologists and anthropologists have found spoons in ancient Egyptian sites and other early human civiliza- civilizations of the same era. But like, that's what's been preserved. And forks are weird too. Bone forks from Bronze Era Chinese cultures have been found dating back to almost four and a half thousand years ago. And to early tool-making humans, the idea of cooking utensils having like a depression in it to hold a liquid or small solids, and another with tines to poke and hold things while you're eating and cooking, doesn't seem like a huge, you know, invention leap to me. But I'm also not an anthropologist. But because I'm already on the speculation train, might as well write it into my theory that having both of these things together in one tool might not have been that hard to come up with. But regardless of the origin of the spoon, fork, or my theory of the spork, the first legal record we have of it is a U.S. patent. A tool that combined a spoon, fork, and knife was patented by Samuel W. Francis back on February 3rd, 1874. And in this patent, it's just what you would imagine. It's a spoon with fork tines coming out of the end and a hopefully very blunt knife edge coming out of the side. There we go. The spork is legally born. And today, the most common places to find sporks in use, at least from the minimal effort of research that I did for this, because let's be real, they're in fast food restaurants, school lunches, prisons, the military, airline meals, and out in the backcountry as part of a well-balanced backpacking equipment list. But as I was researching this, something kind of stuck out to me. The spork is U.S. patent 147119, or the 147th, 119th patent 
to be issued. Back in college, I had a small lecture on patents, trademarks, copyrights, and other forms of intellectual property or IP in one of my senior design lectures. And honestly, the whole idea of a patent and intellectual property is just really weird to me. A patent is a legal form of intellectual property that allows the owner of the patent to legally exclude others from making, using, or selling an invention for a limited period of time, usually about 20 years. To do this, the owner of the design submits a design or set of instructions to the patent office, who can then grant the patent. The patent is then public knowledge and it acts as a legal public disclosure of the ownership of the IP. And that's where I'm going to stop because, yeah, I, I'm good. I don't, this podcast isn't necessarily a legalese podcast. I like to, you know, look at something that is probably a lot more serious and go, ooh, I'm going to focus on some weird aspect of this. There's some evidence that there are forms of recorded patents in the ancient Greek city of Cyprus, but the first fully recognized patent authority was in Venice in 1474, specifically for silk-producing equipment. The early English patent system formed in the 1500s is considered by some to be the beginning of the modern shape of what a patent and patent laws should look like, which was hugely important for the coming English Industrial Revolution a couple hundred years later. In 1741, Samuel Winslow was awarded the first patent in North America for a process of making salt. And for us, on April 10th, 1790, the new U.S. Congress passed a law creating the U.S. Patent Office. And here I'm going to break up the legalese because I want to point out some weird and funny patents that the U.S. Patent Office has actually issued. There was one for the method of exercising a cat, which I, was kind of like a treadmill looking thing a hyper light speed antenna, which breaks very fundamental laws of physics, a method of swinging on a swing, and a space vehicle propelled by inflationary vacuum state, which creates an anti-gravity device. God, I love American ingenuity. But keeping with the vein of firsts, the first patent issued by the U.S. Patent Office was to Samuel Hopkins on July 31st, 1790 for a method of making pot ash and pearl ash. And now we all collectively ask, what, what, what the hell is pot ash? Excellent questions because, yeah, I don't know. Apparently it's a form of salt that contains potassium and it's used for fertilizer. And it was originally collected from the ash on the bottom of pots that was burnt over specific trees that create potassium compounds when they're burnt. And if I'm completely honest, the more I look into it, Potash is one of those things that kind of makes the world run in the background and no one talks about it. Other than being a fertilizer component, derivations of potash are used in metal recycling, ice melting, water softening, animal feed, cement, beer brewing, rubber manufacturing, glass, and medical treatments for low potassium. Actually, the name potassium was derived from the word potash. But let's peel back the curtain on the periodic table and look at everyone's favorite element from bananas, potassium. Our little metal friend is a bundle of 19 protons with some neutrons and a few electrons fizzing around in random probabilities. We normally find potassium in some form of salt, or in my line of day job, as a free-floating ion used for cellular membrane potentials that make your heart go beep-boop. Because you need your heart to go beep-boop, and other stuff like hormones working correctly, blood pressure to be controlled, and muscles to contract, people need to eat a sufficient amount of potassium. 
And here in the U.S., this is only sometimes an issue with diets low in fruits and vegetables. I mean, there's other issues associated with that. And people on diuretics. So on the whole, most of us are fine if we eat a banana or avocado once in a while and try to stay healthy. But to me, that's pretty much all I found that was remotely interesting about potassium. Sorry, chemist, but... I mean, there's cool stories about how it was first derived, minor operations to get it out of the ground, and what type of supernova creates potassium that's part of its death cycle, which is always fun. But on the Wikipedia page all the way down, I ran across a symbol that piqued my interest. And I think we would all recognize it in some form or another, but we just overlook it every day. It's the NFPA 704 Fire Diamond. The standard system for the identification of the hazardous materials for emergency response can be found on the street-facing walls of almost any warehouse or industrial building or on transport trucks. And I know you have all seen them. I would definitely bet money on that. They are a square diamond made up of four smaller squares, one red, one yellow, one white, and one blue, with different numbers in each colored box. And these things really save lives. In essence, this is a message to any emergency responder about what they may come into contact with if they are called into a building. Say you're a firefighter, called to a fire at a warehouse, and you aren't sure what the company there does or what they have on site that might kill you if the fire spreads there. The code immediately tells the responders about anything they need to be aware of and how to best affect the situation. The top red square indicates the flammability of the most dangerous material on the premises. Zero, or nothing, means that the material will not burn under typical fire conditions, whatever those are. And a maximum rating of four means the material will rapidly or completely vaporize at normal atmospheric pressure and temperature, or it will readily burn and disperse into the air. Basically, zero, nothing out of the ordinary. Four, things will catch on fire on their own. The blue square on the left indicates health risk. Zero, or no, nothing means that there's no health hazard above the ordinary combustible material. Four, even a short exposure is extremely hazardous. The example that they used was cyanide. So, you know, that. Yellow on the right is for instability or reactivity. Again, zero, normal stuff. Four, they use the terms detonation and explosive decomposition at normal temperatures and pressures. So, interpret that as you will. And finally, on the bottom is the white square, used for special notices. Here, letters or symbols are used to denote extraneous dangers, such as OX for oxidizer, or a W with a strikethrough for water-soluble. But here, non-standard symbols are sometimes used to denote specific, explicit dangers. A beaker spilling a liquid that's dissolving a bar, that's a corrosive material. The radioactive symbol, pretty self-explanatory. Same with the biohazard symbol. I just have to say the names of those symbols, and you pretty much already know what I'm talking about. And for poison, can we take a guess? The skull and crossbones. A cool little side tangent that we will bring back in a few minutes. But there's actually a really, really interesting methodology about symbol creation, like the biohazard and radioactive symbols. There's a fascinating Vox Media and 99% Invisible crossover video that you can find on YouTube about how the biohazard symbol was designed and the efforts of keeping symbology, especially about dangerous and deadly materials, meaningful for as long as the materials will remain deadly, sometimes thousands of years. And we'll come back to that. But now back to the poison symbol, the skull and crossbones. 
we all know, hopefully, that if there's a bottle under the sink with that symbol, you shouldn't just take a giant swig of it. From a technical standpoint, a poison is any substance that can cause harm or injury to organs, tissues, cells, and DNA, and it can cause death. Hence, the skull and crossbones. If you drink this, you're going to become a spooky skeleton. But even though the symbol has been in use for denoting dangerous substances or situations since 1829, we're all thinking of one pretty original meaning that symbol has. That's right, boys and girls. Here be pirates. The Jolly Roger as a symbol for piracy can be traced back to the 1724 anthology that made pirates a pop culture phenomenon of the day in Victorian England. Captain Charles Johnson's A General History of the Pirates. Actually, the name is about a paragraph longer, but I wasted a lot of time talking about danger symbols. So, well, let's continue on. It's pretty much agreed upon by historians that there is actually no Captain Charles Johnson. But the book is still considered a main source of tales and stories from the golden age of pirates, which can be verified. From these pages, we hear stories of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, Blackbeard, Calico Jack, and Black Bart. But the book also offers a description of the Jolly Roger, the flag flown by Bartholomew Roberts and Francis Spriggs. But their designs were a little bit different. Actually, a lot of pirates had their own flags that they flew to tell people that they were about to meet some baddies. Almost all of them included a skeleton, or someone with a skull head, sometimes stabbing a red heart with a spear, and holding an hourglass, which is pretty damn badass. Clock's ticking, better sail fast. But a point I want to make is that even though this symbol was used as a gentlemanly warning about impending death by pirate, and continues to be a symbol used by navies and militaries, except the SS kind of ruined that, we also see the skull and crossbones on kids' stuff now. Like, pirate stories are sometimes seen as kid stories. When Halloween comes around, you can find skull and crossbones on kids' costumes and adult costumes as well. Kids' shows constantly contain pirate episodes and pirate characters. The symbol of the skull and crossbones has been has kind of lost its bite. Like, we all still understand the meaning of the symbol, but as the Vox and 99PI piece also made the point, it's hard for symbols to retain their meaning over time. After all, we create the symbols, and we also cre create the meaning for them. An accredited push of the devillainization of the Jolly Roger and pirates in general was Robert Louis Stevenson's 1883 adventure novel, Treasure Island. Now, if the general history of pirates gave us the names of favorite, famous pirates, Treasure Island gave us all the cliches of pirates that we have today. Treasure maps with a giant X on them, peg-legged and parrot-shouldered pirates, tropical oasis islands, all that fun stuff with Long John Silver. The book was written after the end of the Golden Age of Piracy in the Caribbean, and in turn used the most feared villains of the sea as extras in a kid's coming-of-age story. And the story of Treasure Island is one of the most dramatized works of fiction ever created. So those ideas of pirates have really spread their influence in our culture. The number of films, TV shows, and subsequent books that contain references to Treasure Island, Long John Silver, or some other public domain reference to the story is literally a sheet as long as my not peg leg. But as we continue to follow the treasure map, we're going to jump into an honestly underrated and undervalued movie from my childhood, The Page Master. Released in 1994, the film follows a shy, awkward Macaulay Culkin, 
as he is forced to battle his way through classic fantasy stories and then learn stuff about himself and things like that. But honestly, this movie was one of my favorites as a kid. It introduced me some of the classic stories that I, in a really fun way. Like, what other movie pulls together Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Moby Dick, Treasure Island, Medieval Dragons, and Jack and the Beanstalk? And on top of that, the cast has Christopher Lloyd, Patrick Stewart, Whoopi Goldberg, Leonard Nimoy, Jim Cummings, and our thread we're going to follow, the voice actor Frank Welker. Welker is probably known best for being the voice of Fred Jones in the cartoon versions of Scooby-Doo since their inception in 1969. He also now voices Scooby-Doo himself, and has been the voice of other characters like freaking Oswald the Rabbit in that video game Bob Iger traded Al Michaels for. If you want to know what I'm talking about, listen to the last episode. A couple Transformers, a couple Mortal Kombat fighters, Curious George, Garfield, and one of the best characters in television history, Nibbler from Futurama. Nibbler is the cute, cuddly, three-eyed pet of Leela on the show who poops dark matter, can eat large animals in a single bite, and who in secret is a hyper-intelligent space captain tasked with protecting the Earth. He is responsible for putting Fry into cryogenic freezing at the beginning of the show in 1999 and has some of these amazing lines. Oh, Nibbler. At least I'm important to you, even if it's only because I clean up your poop. The poop eradication is but one aspect of your importance. Welcome back, Lord Nibbler, ambassador to Earth, homeworld of the pizza bagel. Thank you. I bear many receipts for reimbursement. And so life returned to normal, or as normal as it gets on this primitive dirt ball inhabited by psychotic apes. Leela, it's time you and I had a talk. A talk? You can't break up with me. You're my pet. As much as I enjoy being the object of your misplaced affections, I am also a highly sophisticated being who longs for intelligent conversation. Aw, is Schnookums not feeling stimulated? An understatement to say the least. Alas, our kitten-class attack ships were no match for their mighty chairs. The universe is doomed. Doomed! Can I pull up my pants now? Doomed! <laughs> and now we are in Matt Groening's other animated masterpiece. That I honestly think at times was funnier than The Simpsons, at least in the past, like, 10, 12 years. But at least to me, the jokes in Futurama are so much more stupider, but pretend to be smarter, and are sometimes smarter. Like, it's kind of a cool thing when my old environmental science teacher in high school used the clip of Futurama's climate change solution of dropping a giant block of ice into the ocean to cool everything down. It, it's I think it's pretty funny. But a huge thing I love about Futurama was of all the cameos and parodies. I mean, let's be real. The cartoon Nixon in a jar has more charisma than the actual Nixon did. In another episode, Crossover, we will bring back the man who brought us to the end with Man Bear Pig last time, former Vice President Al Gore. This time actually voiced by himself, not Trey Parker. In the show, Al Gore is the first emperor of the moon, the leader of the new Kyoto climate meetings, Flies around with a, as a head in the jar with rockets and lasers and a cool little cape. And, back in the 90s, was the leader of the Vice Presidential Action Rangers. This is a constitutionally created task force made up of top nerds whose sole duty is to prevent the disruption of the space-time continuum. The task force is made up of Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura, Stephen Hawking, 
summer intern Deep Blue, the IBM chess playing machine, and Gary Gygax, the creator of Dungeons and Dragons. And now we arrive at the world's favorite role playing game that at one point spawned so much satanic panic that a young Tom Hanks played a role in a bad 80s TV movie about a kid who lost the distinction between reality and a game called Mazes and Monsters. Which, first off, that's clever. Second, yes, the game of Dungeons and Dragons is in fact run by Satan. We learn dark magic spells and ways to corrupt and overthrow good Christian moral codes and institutions. We infiltrate the young and impressionable, lead them into controlling positions in world governments, tech companies, and smelly college apartments. As we play our ritualistic game of casting spells, summoning demons, and doing sick sword fighting moves, we slowly corrupt the world and soon all shall tremble at our feet. But beneath our nefarious goals, Dungeon Dragons also teaches players problem-solving skills, allows them to externalize aspects of their personal character into playable characters. It's honestly kind of therapeutic. It allows you to just deal an ungodly amount of cartoon damage to enemies in full barbarian rage mode. Improv and adapt to changing circumstances, and if you're a DM, you learn leadership and planning skills and even more spur-of-the-moment improv. And it lets us nerds live out our oldest and fondest memories of playing make-believe as kids and getting to slay monsters, save towns, and become adventuring heroes. Plus, there's a lot of math. Jesus Christ, there's so much math. But also, you know, hail Satan. Well, there it is. A wandering treasure map of fantasy and symbology, but that's one way you can connect sporks to Dungeons and Dragons. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to REI for sending me a spork for free, the Vox and 99PI video, Why Danger Symbols Can't Last Forever, the podcast Our Fake History and all of their pirate tangential episodes, Nerds and Wizards of the Coast for keeping D&D alive throughout the years, and the Nat 20 of the Modern World, Wikipedia. If you want to see some photos of early spork designs, potassium NFTA diamonds, old Jolly Rogers, and Lord Nibbler, we're on Instagram at to the X degree. If you want to send ideas for new connections, you can DM me there or send an email to xdegreepod at gmail.com. Also, if you guys want, you know, please please tell someone about this. Like, I, I don't know. I think it's cool. I hope you guys are getting something fun out of this. Hopefully it's, you know, encouraging you guys to look at weird, fascinating things. A tangent I wish I went down but didn't, another Robert Louis Stevenson story that also was included in the Pagemaster film was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The story was actually based off a real man in Edinburgh, Scotland. The story was based off a locksmith and cabinet maker who would design and build locks and safes and then rob his clients at night. So, you know, cue the split personality disorder theories and kind of, I guess, an Eddie Murphy movie spinoff? Stay safe out there.